Let's pray. Father, we thank you for um, the opportunity we have to minister to anyone that may walk in this, uh, this building. And so, Lord, we do pray for this woman uh, for her, her foot. Uh, Lord, would you, would you um, use the doctors that we have here in place uh, to love and to care uh, and to show what we're talking about here, the hospitality and care of, the, of, of her creator. Uh, and so, God, uh, what, what a beautiful thing to see, theology, the meeting, uh, the practical theology. And so, Lord, would you, pray for, would you watch over her and help her, and would you use the, the, the instruments and tools you have here in this church already? Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, it is a, you know, I love this place. We will. We will. I want to hear your testimony, but not today. <laughs> but I do want to hear it. I've been waiting. To, so let's actually talk because I want to. We've been wanting to do more testimonies in these services as well. And so let's let's talk about that. That's good. Thank you, Darnell. Um, all right. So what we are doing, I was kind of laying out the, the really the thrust of the book of Hebrews. We're looking at the whole thing right now and we're saying how it's been moving from chapters one to eleven and just like the theology of who Christ is. And then chapter 12 is this mounting theology, and it's crescendoing into the very last couple of verses here in the book of 12, uh, in chapter 12, where it says in verse 18, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest. And he's saying when Moses would touch, and others would come to the mountain, that the, even the mountain was so holy that God's presence was on, that if you touched the mountain in an unholy manner, that you would die. And so he's saying, but now you're coming to a much more approachable God because of what Jesus has done and he's made you acceptable. But don't forget that we are still coming to a God who is a consuming fire. I mean, how would you describe God to someone? Who is God to you? Well, God is love. Yes, he is. How else would you say? Well, he's my dad. Okay. Would you say he's a consuming fire? We don't usually lead with that. But it's a powerful, powerful image that says, yes, he's these other things, but we cannot tame him. He is still the almighty, and we can't tame the almighty. And so what we think about God is everything. And so if we think God is this consuming fire of consuming love, that's going to change how we live. If God is like that, then any imperative or any command that comes is, we, we, we need to listen to this. And so it's kind of funny how this transition works. You hear, you know, be careful of touching the mountain of God. He's a consuming fire. And so here's, here's the big command that's about to happen. Let brotherly love continue. <laughs> oh, just that? <laughs> it, feel, it, it, it almost feels like a, like a drop off. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. Uh, but that's, that's the, the Greek word there is where we get the word Philadelphia, for the city of Philadelphia, the brotherly love. And that's, that's love for your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Um, I, I, I think that, 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 is, that is love for the church. And so the, the author of Hebrews is saying, don't neglect the church. Uh, I think when we, when, sometimes we, we overlook the people closest to us and think, well, they're, they're good. And he's saying, don't neglect actually loving internally the, the church, loving your brothers and your sister. Let that love continue. But then quickly behind that, the author says, and yet in your love for your brother and sister, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And the Greek word there is very similar to the Philadelphia. The word there is actually philoxenia. The phila is that same root word for love. And xenia is the word where we get xenophobia. 
that fear of outsiders. And Hebrews is saying, yes, love your brothers and sisters, but also love the strangers, the people that may just walk in. Love them. Now, this is actually radical because in, in ancient times, traveling was, was very dangerous. They didn't actually have uh, hotel inns and red roof inns and the motel sixes, right? They didn't have, they didn't have these, these, these chains of hotels that you could just go and figure out where you're going to go stay because traveling in that day was very dangerous. And so it wasn't, it wasn't profitable to have a hotel. And so when you would go from one town to the next, that's where you'd get jumped, Right? So it was a very dangerous thing. And so when you did arrive to a city, you actually had to stand outside the gate of the city and wait for someone to invite you in. You had to wait for someone to show complete hospitality and love for you. And you're completely dependent on them and on what they might do for you. And the ancients actually took this very seriously. And they took the, the, the Jews took this so seriously. They had in this document the Didache and said there are these rules that we need to, sh- to be uh, implementing to love our outsiders, our strangers. And it was their hospitality code. And the code was this. It was these four things. It was an invitation. It was a screening. It was a feeding. And then it was the departure. It was very, very, very fast. So the person who stood outside had to be waited just to be invited in into their homes. And then if you did invite them, then you sat there and you screened them. And you would ask them questions to find out who they are. You also need to find out your, this is an invitation to other brothers and sisters in Christ or in that time, uh, other, other believers. Um, so you would ask things like, what's your favorite Bible verse? And they would say, First Slimothy 3.16. And then you would promptly say, it's time to go. That's heresy. <laughs> um, but no, you, they actually would. If they would not be able to answer your question rightly, you kick them out. Or if they asked for anything, if they asked for money, They were now seen as a parasite, and you kicked them out of your house and therefore out of the city. But if they just needed a place to stay, they could stay. And then you fed them, you you fed them well, and then they could only stay two days. And they had to depart after two days. And so the Jews actually took hospitality seriously. I mean, this this was the standard then. And Paul took it seriously. In the New Testament, Paul says... A requirement to be a leader or an elder in a church, you have to have hospitality as a gift or a characteristic of you. It's not, it's, it's, yes, it's other things of knowing this, knowing your Bible, but you have to be hospitable. He says that twice in the New Testament. And so this isn't just for those who have that gift and we kind of put it off and say, well, I don't really have that gift of hospitality. That's a nice add-on. No, it's saying it's something we are required to do or something we are required to be. Why? Well, Deuteronomy 10 says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the almighty, the awesome God. This is kind of that picture of the the consuming fire. Uh, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner or the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner. Therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And so he's saying, why should we do this? Because because you were aliens and you were strangers and I fed you and clothed you. You only live because of my hospitality. If you are saved by grace, then you live because a life giving hospitality given to you. God's heart is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer so that if you cut God open, he is bleeding hospitality. 
It says that if you do this, you could also be entertaining angels unaware. Famous verse here about you may be entertaining angels unaware. And, and the author of Hebrews is harking back to Genesis 18, where Abraham takes in these three random strangers, which was a, a dangerous thing to do at that time. Again, it was a, it was, we don't know these people. He brings them into his home and he feeds them. And he's actually feeding angels, messengers of God. I don't know the theology behind how that worked. We're not going to get into the nitty gritty there. That'll be an after, after sermon discussion where you can ask other people besides me. <laughs> But you can see Abraham's heart. Abraham's heart is so bent towards the outsider that he's going to welcome them into his home, even at the potential cost of himself. His heart is is constantly for the outsider, which is what pushed him to then say, when he heard God say, move to this far off country, I will go to this far off country. And so he's always looking outwards because our God is always looking outwards. Our God's always looking at who needs a cup of cold water. Who, who needs the love and care of Christ today? Who needs to be encouraged and given hope? And to make it even clearer what God's heart breaks for, in verse 3 it says, Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. And so do you see what God's heart breaks for? It says it's the outsider, it's the widow, it's the orphan, it's the poor, it's those in prison. And don't just remember them. In those early times, um, prisoners actually had to be completely dependent on their families and relatives and, and, and friends. So that if they needed to be fed, they needed their families to bring them the food. If they needed blankets and something warm so that they wouldn't freeze they were completely dependent on outsiders the prisons wouldn't offer that to them and so christians made names for themselves being the ones that would go visit people in prison bringing them blankets bringing them food just keep them alive but then when things got when they would imprison men and women unjustly for and and they were being mistreated it got even so radical that some christians said, I'm going to do this in such a way that I'm going to join you in prison so that you are never alone. And it was weird then to the world, and it it would be weird now for us to see someone say, I'm going to go in jail so they're not alone. And that was the radical love and hospitality that that was being portrayed right here. And it's crazy, but it's also so, so powerful. And if you're completely dependent on someone else and they said, I don't want you to feel alone, I'm coming in with you. God has this sincere heart and care for the outsider, for the orphan, for those who are being oppressed. I mean, this is God has a heart and a concern for social justice, those who are mistreated, those who are oppressed. I mean, the Christians were protesting these arrests. As I said, they put themselves in prison. And so God just has this radical view of of what social justice is, a radical view of loving the poor and the oppressed. And at this point, one Christian and others might say like, "Okay, I like this. I like this. And others might say, oh, let me write you off. You're, at, you're starting to talk liberal. Oh, you care for that? Never mind. And yet this passage is paired like a nice wine with verses 4 and 5. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, and keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. That feels like an odd pairing. Why go from loving strangers and visiting prisons 
to the wedding bed. Don't those seem like an odd grouping? I think we like to think that things then were so different than they are now, but there's actually a lot of similarities. Okay, so I'm on board with loving strangers. I'm on board with outsiders and orphans and widows. This is my type of church. But then you go ahead and say, you know, let's keep things only in in one marriage. Let's keep, let's, let's, let's restrict ourselves. And now you're sounding like you're a conservative and I'm going to write you off too. I thought you were leaning this way. And Christians were very weird then as they are today. It almost sounds contradictory, right? But no. And here's why. The gospel doesn't allow us to be comfortable in either camp. It was true then as it is now. The gospel says something different about your home. It says that your home is not even your home. It's to be used for outsiders because you were. And then it says something different about your money and your sexuality. It says it's not yours either. The Bible says your money is to be meant for not just for your pleasure and your affluence and your status. It's, it's supposed to be used to be investing in your community and the people around you, benefiting the people around us. And then your sexuality isn't yours either. It's supposed to also be investing in the community and outward facing, not just your pleasure, but kept solely for your spouse. I mean, it's a completely radical and upside down way to see the world. I mean, the world says, says be generous with your sexuality, but be strict with your money. This is the opposite, exact opposite. God says, be generous with your kitchen table and be conservative with your bed. Be expensive with your hospitality and frugal with your intimacy because the world does see it the opposite way. Save everything. Why limit yourself to one person? Why help a stranger out? Why be committed to only one person? But here's the beauty of the gospel. Christ was extravagant with his love with us. He spent everything on us. Zephaniah says he is singing over us. He loves us that much. And yet he is solely committed to us, even when we're not committed to him. This is the power behind everything. Jesus Christ didn't see his body was his own. He gave everything to make us a community. He gave himself. He didn't look out just for himself that his mind was set outwards. And to just to reassure the people in this letter, he also says, but to give you the power to do that, to do these crazy acts of kindness, let me read verse five again to you. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. And then he says, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How do I see that my home, my living room, my kitchen table, my bank, my bed, all of these things, how do I see that these are not mine? But as God's and for him to use, he says, here's the power to do that. Remember the God who is the consuming fire, who Christ has been shown to be better than all of these things, that who's the the pinnacle of all creation. He took on flesh and promised you and me, I will never, never leave you. And I will never, never, never forsake you. And that's exactly how it's written in the Greek. He uses five negatives in this small little portion here to hit that pa- that pass- passage home. He is that committed to you. I will never, never leave you, and I will never, never, never forsake you. It is a beautiful, beautiful verse, and I just need to hear that. Why did I preach this passage? Because I need to hear that part. I don't want to be left standing alone at the altar. I will never, never leave you. 
I don't want to be just the one who's out there all by himself. I will never, ever, ever forsake you. That's the, the heart that is bleeding from our, our, our creator and our savior. The gospel is this, that you and I are actually far worse off than we actually know. That our hearts are darker than we really know. And yet, we are far more loved than we ever dared hope. There's nothing that Christ is going to look at us and go, oh, you did that? Disqualified. He knows that the darkest parts of us better than we do, and yet he loves us even more. The gospel is good news to messed up sinners like you and me. It's a God who bleeds hospitality for you and me who were the outsider. Because if we came to heaven and God used that same code, we'd have to be staying outside of heaven for a very long time. He wouldn't be saying, come on in. We wouldn't even get the invitation. But if somehow we got the invitation, the screening process, we'd be gone. But even if we passed the screening process, somehow we tricked him. Two days is all they got. And he says, you will be with me forever and ever and ever. We literally cut God open on the cross. We were the ones that yelled crucify him. There's no way we would be accepted into that unless it was because of who Jesus was. And yet he still feeds us. And yet he still invites us into his home, invites us to his table. We get to partake, I'm so excited, to partake in what we call communion, the Lord's table. And he says, feast because of my great love for you. We're going to spiritually feast on him. And he's going to say, come, all you who are heavy laden, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. Are you tired of running? Maybe you're just tired. It's been a long summer. Maybe you're tired from a move. Maybe you're tired from setting up this morning. Are you tired of feeling like every relationship is just hanging by a thread? That I'm going to lose out on this person or that person? Well, it's not true with God. He says, I'm yours forever, and that's it. And instead of kicking us after two days, again, we are with him forever. And this is just the radical nature of the gospel. Though we saw Jesus and and put him outside the city, as we talked about in our our confession earlier, and rejected him, he will never reject us. Never, ever, ever. And so I'm asking you, what does that mean for you this week? Maybe you just need to hear that good news and just marinate on that this week. Start there. But what does that mean for you this month? What, if hospitality is not just inviting people to your home, though it is that, but it's a general disposition of having an inviting spirit to make others always feel at home, even in your presence, I'd say start there. Does our countenance, does our, does our welcome by our face <laughs> invite people into our presence and feel at home? Is our attitude that of always wanting to make others feel at home, even when they may be far from home? It's a great question to always ask someone. Where's home for you? And we want them to say right here with you. 
Secondly, I want you to visualize your kitchen table for a moment. Can you picture it? Some of you have great kitchen tables. Some of us may have a portable kitchen table. Whatever your kitchen table is, I want you to visualize it, and I want you to see it as something that actually may be semi-sacramental. Not heresy yet. What are the sacraments? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. It, it, it's, something, it's taking something common, like water, like bread, like wine. And though it is common, you can get these things at any store. You can make them anywhere else. They're very common. But it, when you, they are dedicated to God, when they are prayed over and they are used for God's glory, they can be monumental. They have so much power. And so our kitchen table, though looks like it needs cleaning, so our kids put the, the food in the cracks. It has immense power. Our, our snack drawer has immense power of saying, just feel at home with us. Go grab a snack. We need to restock it. And so I want you to ask, how can I draw more people into contact with God by the use of my money, by my home, by my things, by my time? And so just wondering, who needs a warm meal or in the summer, who needs a cup of ice water? And John Piper calls this thinking about things with strategic hospitality. Who are these people who can be brought together into my home most strategically for the sake of the kingdom? And if you invite someone into your home, it's going to be expensive. Not because we're saying you need to do the Martha Stewart, everything pristine, and have a, a seven-course meal for people. I think a peanut butter and jelly sandwich can be monumental for hospitality. It can be expensive because of what it might cost you with your energy and your time that you're giving to this. And I think that's a, 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 that, that is an expensive thing that we give up all the time and we say, I don't have time, I don't have time. But we're making time for someone else we don't even know. It's not just for the people that we're best friends with. We're saying, come into my home, stranger. And so it's strategic hospitality. And we're inviting them into a, into a conversation, into an invitation that is life-changing. And some of us have experienced this before. Some of us have been invited into other people's homes and have experienced that. Maybe while we were younger or even maybe recently, we've been invited into someone's home. And just their openness of saying, yeah, just be at home. Yeah, get something out of the fridge. That casual nature almost made it more inviting of said, like, they really do love me. They're not trying to put on a show. I'm seeing them parent in different parenting ways than I would parent. But you're being invited into a home and you're seeing the love of Christ through a family, through a home. And I, I remember, in, an, in another way, I remember walking into a room when we first moved here. We've been here seven plus years. I remember first walking into a room. Uh, it, was a, it was a pastor's lunch. And so I went to a pastor's lunch and we were just new to Waco. And they had a room with uh, some of those you know, black drapes on, on the outside. And they had the circle tables. And I remember walking in and I, was show, I show, showed up. 10 minutes late. So every table was packed, all sitting around the tables, all facing inwards. And I had the moment of going, where am I going to sit? You, have you felt that moment? You may have felt it when you walked in here. We're glad you're here. But you walk in, you go, what? Do, do they have a spot for me? And so then I walked to the uh, buffet line, got my food, 
thought, while I'm doing it, I'm just looking out the corner of my eye. Maybe something will open up or someone will see a lonely stranger. And I stood there and I go, do I just nudge myself into a table and be forward in that manner? And I actually said, no, it's probably time to go. So I put my food down and I tried to just slowly walk out. (laughs) And there was a pastor who said, hey, come on over here. And he moved over. He gave up his seat, went and grabbed someone else's chair. And he made space for me. (laughs) He said, we have a seat for you. And when you're that vulnerable and that like, oh, no one may like me. When you're standing on the outside of this gate saying, will anyone invite me in? And to have someone say, come in. I want you to hear that this morning. That Jesus Christ is saying, come to the table. We have a seat for you. I love you this much. Come to the table. In fact, I'm throwing this feast for you, whether you knew it or not. I pray that that what bleeds out of Christ's heart, his hospitality, would just wash over us, that we would would feel the love of Christ, and that would push us outwards to our neighbors, to orphans, to widows, to shut-ins, to elderly, to anyone who might need it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me pray.